Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So I have a ton of topics that I want to cover today, uh, including... The yield curve, which is what the title of this video is referring to. A little bit about precious metals and, and gold versus the stock market. I want to talk about Canada and Australia and their housing markets and, and their potential uh, economic futures. And finally, uh, end up with, with some uh, discussion about Trump and, and, and the Fed. Uh, but jumping right into it, this chart that you're looking at right here, and I apologize for those of you guys that are in podcast format, but what you're looking at here in the black, the black line, is the U.S. 10-year yield, the, the yield on the U.S. 10-year bond. And the orange line here is the yield on the three-month bond, or bill, actually. They'd call it a three-month bill. And as you can see here, these these are on the same scale. And as of today, the yield on the 10-year bond is lower than the three-month bill. That's what you call a curve a yield curve inversion, meaning a shorter dated bond or bill, is at a higher interest rate or yield than a longer dated one. Now, this is not the first time that this has happened in this economic cycle. Um, you know, for some time, I think the three year and the five year had been inverted, and I think they remain inverted today. Uh, the the ten year and the two year. You know, this inversion is nothing new in in this cycle, and yet. This 10-year and three-month year or three-month bill is perhaps the strongest indicator of of well a big part of why people focus on this yield curve in that in the first place, and that is a future recession. For the last 50 years, every recession in the United States has been preceded by an inversion of the yield curve, and in particular, the one that you have to watch is. This one that we're looking at right here. In fact, Zero Hedge posted an article on this today, talked about this inversion and how this is confirmed by uh, who we'll refer to as Larry No Recession in Sight Kudlow, right? The former, uh, what, CNBC commentator. I think he was on CNBC. Um, and then, uh, you know, picked up by the Trump administration. Um, in a interview this past summer, he was, he was talking about the yield curve and how it had been flattening. And, and he basically said, now, you know what? You know, research has shown that we should be focusing on the 10-year and the two-year uh, difference or spread um, and, and eventual inversion. Uh, we should be focusing on the 10-year and three-month. That's been a much better uh, indicator of, of a future recession. Well, I'd be interested to see, hear his take on it because since he's been picked up by the Trump administration, he's uh, been a huge cheerleader for the economy. As I said, he's, you know, Larry, no recession in sight, Kudlow. That's basically what he says every time is no recession in sight, no recession in sight. And yet you're looking at a very long-term chart here and you can see that inversions have occurred back in 2000. And, you know, I don't know if there's really an inversion back in 98, but certainly in 2000, recession followed that. Uh, and you're at a recession here in, 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 or sorry, uh, an inversion here in, you know, 2006, probably 2000, late 2006, um, early 2007. And of course, that was followed by the Great Recession. Is it going to be different this time around? I think we're soon going to find out the answer is no. 
And, you know, if you're looking at, at, at the distance here from when this inversion occurs and when the recession begins, it's a, you know, we're talking about a year, right? Uh, nine months, uh, 15 months, 18 months, maybe might be stretching it. But we're coming up into a recession here. And, and this is a rock solid indicator. Um, this is, you know, I, I'm not going to get too much into the bond market particulars, partly because I'm not an expert on the bond market and I'm not going to pretend that I am. Um, this is partly as a result of, um, well, Fed policy and and perhaps a policy error. Uh, it's also be, because of the three month and its, its relation to um, the Fed funds rate, as you can see that it, it follows it pretty you know, closely since the Fed funds rate is a very short-term interest rate as the Fed fund, as as the Fed funds rate has been going up. So it's a three-month. Um, it's also, I, I, it's as much a product as an indicator of of take the economic slowdown, the end of the cycle, and and the beginning of the next uh, you know recession. But uh, very important indicator, and, and and again, you can also see this over here. On this is a little bit longer term. This is from Zero Hedge, but this is uh, uh, from the Fed Reserve Bank and Bloomberg Opinion. As you can see, that the the um, spread basically um, moving down to here in zero. Uh, what you have here in green is the three month, or sorry, blue. I'm colorblind apparently. Blue is the three month versus ten year, and the two year versus ten year. So. Um, the two year and 10 years, very good indicator as well, but the three month and 10 year maybe is a slightly better indicator. And again, you see an inversion before a 1990 recession, inversion between 2001 before 2008. It's a pretty solid indicator of a coming recession. And, and this is yet another one. Never mind what the stock market is doing, right? S&P, Dow Jones, a little bit down on the day, but but since uh, the, the Fed meeting, um, they've been doing fairly well. They might be even by now with, with today's drop, but um, since the Fed meeting, which the Fed basically said uh, the economy is not strong enough for to for us to continue to, to tighten, even though we're not in a very tight, uh, we're still very accommodative, all things considered. I don't know if Powell said that. I'm just editorializing. Uh, the, apparently, the stocks market sound that is bullish. And in fact, you know, I was talking about in my podcast uh, or my video yesterday how you know, is the stock market really a reflection of the economy or is it a reflection of uh, monetary policy and, and more accurately, the easiness, uh, easy money, um, accommodative policy, QE, low interest rates and whatnot. And I heard, you know, a very similar thing. I, I, I think this was um, Eric Townsend on his uh, pod, podcast, Macro Trends. Who knows? Maybe I borrowed this from him without realizing it. But he was talking about the same thing. You know, it, it makes no sense for, for the Fed to come out and say the economy's struggling, so we're not going to tighten and the, the stock market go up. Unless the stock market is just a reflection of monetary policy and QE. In fact, his guest was David Rosenberg, a very well-known uh, analyst and whatnot. And, and, and he was talking about how, uh, you know, back in, what was it, 2012 or something, how, how Ben Bernanke, you know, basically came out and said it, that we're doing QE for the purpose of pumping up the stock market, looking to get a wealth effect here. Um, it's, it's, you know, as plain as day. Um, there'll be people out there that say it's not the case, but uh, again, the stock market where it is today is not a reflection of the economy. It's a reflection of monetary policy. doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. So moving on to the next topic that I want to talk about here is gold and the stock market. Now, this is an interesting chart that I just pulled up here. This is the S&P 500 and gold. Uh, now, this is going back to you know the late the late 90s, and the reason I want to show this to you, 
what I did here is I put them on the same scale. So as you can see, um, you know, S and P, you know, north of twenty eight hundred, and 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 gold just north of thirteen hundred. Um, to to bring a couple up, a couple different things. First of all, uh, to show you the the I guess breadth between the S and P and the and gold and and where it's at right now, um, and, and to show you what the difference was, uh, you know, following. Uh, the stock market crash in, in the fall of 08 and the, the recession and the eventual recovery that coincided for some time with a major rally in gold. You know, as you can see here, gold basically uh, was was above the S&P in, in value. Uh, of course, the S&P is just a point, I, I, you know, a bunch of different stocks and whatnot, but it was above the S&P in 2010, the summer of 2010, and it remained that more or less all the way until gold started to, to head back down in, in the winter of, of 2013 and uh, 2012. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 12. Now, to put that in perspective, you can look at this a lot of different ways, right? Now, a stock bull would say, see, stocks are so much better than gold. And, and of course, they're not wrong that over that time span, stocks have outperformed massively um, uh, versus gold. And, you know, you... It's, it, there's no denying that. Now, you know, the counter argument to that is, yeah, it has. But look, what, what I'm arguing right here, me, Silver Fortune Matt, is that stocks aren't always the best option. Neither is gold, maybe. Now, is it good to always have some gold, silver? I think so. Obviously, none of this should be taken as investment advice, but I think so. Is it good to have some stocks all the time? Yeah, you know, depends. Depends on your individual situation and whatnot. But... There's certainly an argument. The argument that I'd be making is that there's a time to be more heavily weighted into stocks versus gold. And I'm not so certain that right now here at the top, what would appear to be at the top or pretty close for stocks is the time to go all in on stocks. Right, The time would have been you know, roughly 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago now in, in what March of, of 09 when, when the S&P bottomed out at 666 points. You know, that would have been the time or, or even 2010 or 2012, maybe not all in, but it is now the time to go all in, right? Now, the other way you can look at this is either A, gold has a long ways to rise if it's going to, again, top the S&P, which I think is a very much reality in the future. Very, very real possibility. Or the S&P has a long ways to fall. Or both, right? Either way, you know, this this uh, spread between the two is at very high levels, um, probably the highest it's ever been. You know, I, I guess this is certainly the, the highest it's been since, you know, the nineties, late nineties, when I, how far this chart goes back. I mean, looking back in, in 2000, when the S and P and the broader stock market, stock market was doing very well, you're looking at a spread of about, um, you know, a thousand, right. Um, today we're looking at a spread of about 1500. So it's pretty darn close to the, the widest it's ever been, uh, on this time, uh, during this time span, that's probably going to shrink again, right? Is, is gold going to outpace S&P or going to be worth more than the S&P in the future? It's hard to say. I tend to think that, yeah, 
um, through a combination of, of gold going up and the S&P going down. But either way, I think the spread is very high. And it's just an interesting chart to look at. We, we talk about the Dow to gold ratio all the time and how low will it go in the next cycle with, with gold going up and whatnot and silver to Dow ratio and, and gold to silver ratio and all that. All important discussions and whatnot, especially when it comes to, you know, when do you, you know, potentially sell some of, of, of your metals, uh, which could be borderline overvalued and, and buy some undervalued stuff because I'm not all against stocks. I get it. There's, there's a lot of risk in, in paper markets and, and yeah, I'll be talking about that in a video, which I'll actually record shortly after this, but be coming out with it tomorrow. But, uh, it's hard to argue with, with the results too. So maybe there's a time to be more heavily into stocks and, and the time to get into them would be when they're very low and, and, you know, gold be very high. So a lot of ways to look at this, but I tend to think that, that, you know, I just thought it was interesting. We can put them on the same chart and realize, wow, gold had, it was, you know, it was a good um, couple hundred above the S&P here in 2011. Uh, you know, that would put gold, you know, north of, of 3,000 today or around 3,000 or put the S&P at, you know, 800 or, or 1,000 today, you know, or 1,100. Um, so whatever way you look at this, um, I think this outperformance by the S&P versus gold, uh, is is going to come back down to earth. I, I can't say that uh, S and P is always gonna out or never gonna outpace gold again, or that it's it's you know because it's hard to argue with the fact that stocks can be a good investment, right? They're producing, right? And this doesn't even account for for things like like um, dividends and whatnot over this time span. And yet, I think this this spread is gonna ultimately come down, and it's gonna be a combination of I think gold going up and 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 the S and P coming down. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about is uh, two markets that I've talked about a little bit here on this channel. I know a fair amount of my viewers, listeners, are, are probably from these countries, and that is Australia and Canada. And more specifically, the risks that are in their housing market. Now, when you look at the U.S. housing market, I would argue that a lot of the housing markets, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's quite a few out there that are in massive bubble territory, you know, San Francisco and whatnot, um, Overall, I think it's overvalued and it's probably going to come down in the next recession. Uh, but it's not at the levels, it's not, I don't think pose, doesn't pose as much of a risk this time around as, again, we're coming up in a recession as it did during the Great Recession. I think it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to look different this time in terms of, of what's going to be the, the catalyst. And yet, over in Australia and over in Canada, it's a bit of a different picture. Now this this is a uh, this is a timeline for for four major markets. We have Sydney, Brisbane, uh, Melbourne, and and Perth over in Australia. And it, you know the point. By the way, this is from Wall Street Wolf Richter, somebody who I've been reading more lately. Great work. Um, I highly encourage you to check it out. But um, this is from this uh, stats are from CoreLogic RBA, uh, uh, Royal, uh, Reserve Bank of Australia, I think, or you know Australia's central bank, I believe. Um, as you can see here, in, in 2009 and whatnot, it'd be nice if these went back a little further. And will for, for Canada's, which we'll get to here in a second. But not a massive decline. That was kind of the story for both of these markets is that they didn't, you know, Australia actually didn't go into recession. I'm not sure about uh, Canada, but Australia did not go into recession during the Great Recession. They haven't seen a recession since, I think, the 90s. Um, their, their housing market didn't suffer a whole lot over that time span. And certain ones like Sydney or Melbourne saw massive appreciation since then. And it, you know, it really appears to have maybe topped out here in, in 2017, 2018. Since then, prices have been declining, and and you know, there's you know, similar to the U.S. 
back in, in 2006 or whatever, 2005, some similar, you know, shady practices, whether it's subprime or whatever, you know, as a whole, as you see in, in housing bubbles, housing just becomes unaffordable, too expensive for the broader market. Um, what's going on right now also is, as, as, as Wolf points out here is, is a, um, an increase in supply coming onto the market. Uh, this is, this is showing, um, condo or, 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 apartments uh, and their increase in, in stock or increase in supply coming onto the market as of late, uh, which is, again, going to be not, I guess, good for for a market that is potentially already overvalued and whatnot and already on the way down. Um, so, you know, some similar things going on here, but I think the bigger takeaway here, because again, going back to the bond market, I'm not an expert on the real estate market either, right? I, I try and, and, and bring a lot of this all together and, and give you guys some, some good information here. The bigger picture here is, is, um, what is this going to mean for Australia's financial system and economy going forward? If housing continues to decline and, and their central banking government can't prop it up anymore, um, are they going to experience something similar to the United States during the great recession in terms of a financial crisis? And there's somebody, you know, back in the day that, that said this, you know, that financial crisis risk and somewhere in the U.S. is, you know, a, a real possibility that may, but maybe higher, or maybe they said it's in, in their opinion, unlikely, but higher in places like Australia or Canada. And, and I have to agree that, that I think, you know, for similar reasons as to what happened in the U.S., uh, that Australia and Canada could be heading in that same direction. And speaking of Canada, where a good portion of my, viewers. In fact, I had, uh, I had somebody comment the other day and there, you know, it probably was a, a, a negative comment if nothing else, but they said, you know, you know, in fact, I said it right there. He said, you know, you say, you know, a lot. And, and here I am saying it even as I, I quote this, but are, he says, are you Canadian? And somebody comments or Wisconsin, LOL. And I'm like Minnesota actually. So pretty close Northern Minnesota. Um, I, 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 you know, probably do use, you know, quite a bit, you know, uh, I don't use a as much. Um, but yeah, the Minnesotan accent and, and, and whatnot are, are not that far off, off from, from some parts of Canada. But anyways, talking about Canada, uh, Wolf has these, these collected here as well. Um, now this is from, looks like source of data, Terranet, National Bank, HPI. Uh, this is showing Vancouver and their increase since 2002 with very little dips along the way. The two-decade housing bubbles, he'd call it. 316%, with a very small decline here as of late, similar to, to Australia. So that's Vancouver. This is Toronto, 218%. And what he does here is he compares Toronto to San Francisco. And we'd say San Francisco is looking pretty bubblicious right now. Very expensive housing there. And yet Toronto dwarfs it, right? You might have a... He's got Montreal and San Francisco, right? He's got um, Calgary and, and San Francisco. So, you know, the big takeaway here is that what's going on in Australia, maybe we'll go back to the yield curve as a reminder for you guys. What's going on in Australia, what's going on in Canada is, you know, very, very large housing bubble. Um, now there's a variety of reasons for it. Um, I think especially with Australia and to some extent, Canada, uh, China and their, their growth that they experienced, um, and you know, since 2000, since the turn of the, the millennia, that has played a big role in the expansion of their economy and their housing market. And, and I don't think it can be ignored. And yet, if we're going to say that going forward, China 
Well, first of all, going back, China was what saved Australia from experiencing a deep recession or recession in the first place when the rest of the world, or at least the United States, was experiencing a great recession. And if we're going to say going forward that China's growth, no matter what way you look at it, is not going to be as robust as it's been in the past, whether it's because of uh, their own Minsky moment or because of just overall. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Their secular growth, just not grown as much as it has in the past. Australia, or, or if you're going to say that, yeah, they're, they're just going to downright move into a recession. They're due for a deep crash. Whatever way you put it, they're, they're likely not to experience the growth that they've experienced over the last you know 20 years uh, for the next five or 10 years. And that means Australia and to some extent Canada is going to get a lot less help in the future from China and that they're going to feel this next recession. Um, and it's going to be rough there. They're, they're overdue for a correction. In fact, I had a commenter the other day from Australia. A lot of you guys are from Canada or Australia, I notice. Um, UK too, and, and maybe Ireland, you know, a lot of the more English-speaking countries, maybe New Zealand. Uh, but, you know, he, he commented about, you know, what's going on in Australia, and when I don't remember the, the whole context of his comment or exactly what he said, but my reply was basically like, look, the United States is, is in a lot of trouble, debt or, or the, the monetary system, QE, inflation, whatever way you're looking at it, the crash of the dollar. We got a lot of potential problems here in the future, but Australia, I, whew, that could be bad. Right, people haven't experienced a recession there in a long time, and and they're well overdue for one. It could be very painful, very volatile times. Um, yeah. I, I I don't know. I I I don't want to say the U.S. is in a better picture, but I certainly would would say that I I would rather deal with what the U.S. is going to deal with in the future than Australia. Um, I, I wouldn't choose either, but but Australia is looking pretty rough, and and Canada. They're dealing with some of their own housing bubbles as well. And and I don't see that ending well either. You know, potential financial crisis within uh, Canada's banking system, I think, is, is very elevated right now, to put it lightly. So, anyways, finally, last thing I wanted to talk about here. Saving this for last because, I don't know, if I put it first, I feel like there'd be a lot of people just hurt because I'd say anything potentially negative about Donald Trump, which is not necessary. Well, I'll just get to it. So basically, Trump says, and this is from The Hill, Trump says economy would be much stronger if Fed stopped rate hikes sooner. And what he says here, highlighted, if we didn't have somebody raising interest rates and do quantitative tightening, we would have been over 4% instead of a 3.1% in terms of economic growth, Trump told Fox Business in an interview that aired Friday. The world is slowing, but we're not slowing. Now, that last comment is somewhat true. We, we haven't slowed as much as maybe Europe or China. But in terms of um, GDP being higher, had they not raised interest rates, there, there might be some truth to that as well. It's hard to say. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that beginning in 2008, even 2017, with anticipation of it, the Trump tax cuts kick the can down the road. That's what they did. Now, I get it. Tax cuts are good. Nobody likes paying more taxes. I think it's good to pay less and whatnot. Okay, I get all that. And I would agree with a caveat, which I'll get to here in a second. But 
it kicked the can down the road, right? And you know, this is this is in, in a similar manner that China has in the past with their credit liquid uh, uh, credit um, injections, or or their uh, easing policies, or the ECB. The Fed has done it with their QE programs, or holding off interest rate hikes, or whatever. Uh, kicking down the, the can down the road has has been common practice around the world since 2008. Um, trying to extend this, and and Trump tax cuts achieved that. Uh, very good economic growth um, as a result of it. I shouldn't say very good, but but you know they they help certainly boost it, and, and they help boost the stock market. And if you believe in such things as a wealth effect, maybe somewhat of that as well. Uh, it's 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 hard to say how much of it makes into the broader economy, but I can tell you one thing that you know it's certainly you know a different type of wealth effect in the sense that it's increasing wealth inequality. But anyways, I would agree with what Trump says here. That yeah, the the economy maybe could have done much much better if the Fed had only raised rates, you know, once last year, maybe twice, or not done QT as much or whatever. But you got to understand that that you know, moving into the idea of, of Fed and and their um their independence or or lack thereof or whatever, you know, immediately people are going to come out and and criticize Trump like they have you know, over the last year for his criticism of the Fed. And, and the lack of independence, and I, I, I would tend to uh, I agree, I guess, because I, I'm not a fan of the Fed in the first place, and, and I don't think the Fed should be independent. I think what the Fed does should be done independent of some central bank, you know, whether interest rate policies or whatever, that should be set by the market or something else, right? There's there's some huge problems with having a group of people uh, have so much power over money creation, interest rates, etc. Um, but in terms of Fed independence, um, I, you, I would make the argument that that Obama benefited a ton from the Fed. That you know, never mind what he said directly to them publicly or whatever. But if you just look at the data, the Fed maintained an accommodative policy for a record amount of time, as far as I know. Maybe the Great Depression, maybe longer, but certainly how accommodative they were a record amount of accommodation, right? Basically 0% interest rates, their Fed funds rate, with a massive amount of QE for basically the length of, of Obama's presidency. Now, are you going to say that that was independence from the Fed, that they were being data independent? No, they had opportunities. They had to raise rates at some point in there, and yet they didn't really. I mean, Janet Yellen raised it once at the end of 2015, didn't do it again until the end of 2016, while Obama was technically in office, but but Trump was uh, already elected. Uh, you know, the argument, and I don't know, looks like I'm, maybe I'll bring it back here. You know, the argument to say that they are independent is just no uh, they're not never mind what trump says and, and maybe him trying to, to sway their future um policy or make a political move or whatever um i wouldn't i i would wager or i would argue that they weren't independent for the last administration either so it's unreasonable to expect them to be independent this time around in fact you can look at it a different way and say you know by tightening so much during trump's term but but not during obama's administration um that they're not being independent, that they're being harder on the guy. Now, you know, the other side of it is that, you know, that the Trump tax cuts gave them cover to, to raise rates. I mean, the Fed loses all credibility if they have any remaining, um, if they don't raise rates in, in, in a time period of like 4% economic growth or unwind their balance sheet, as, as Trump's talking about here, or 3.1% or whatever we're talking about. 
north of three percent and and low unemployment and whatnot. I mean, they they got it at some point, right? They lose all credibility if they don't do that. Um, and, and so he's he's right, but that doesn't mean that that's what they should have done because what the the result of that would have been a bigger bubble. They would have had less room to have ultimately ease. I'm not arguing for what the Fed does in terms of their policy, just the overarching philosophy behind having a central bank in the first place. But from their perspective, they, they, they had to, right? And and the alternative would have been a large blown up the bubble and less ammunition for the Fed. Maybe get rates up to, to 1.5% or something instead of where they're at now, I think 2 and a quarter and 25 Um and and less, you know, unwind in the balance sheet, right? Um, and and so I mean, it's it's just not. I don't know. I have little sympathy for him. He had a good year of economic growth. A lot of it was Trump tax cuts. Now the Fed probably did decrease some of that, especially in the second half of the year with with her hiking and whatnot. But they have to. I mean, that's how. Uh, he, he, the thing is, is that you know, from a partisan perspective. You know, Democrats, Republicans are are incredibly partisan these days and hypocritical oftentimes as well. And so, you know, if you're going to say a Republican, whether Trump or somebody else, doesn't matter. Again, I'm not trying to step on toes here. I'm just saying, let's not be hypocritical here. Um, You know, Trump during the, um, you know, election campaign criticized uh, the Fed. For, for not raising rates enough and that, that it was a big fat bubble. The stock market's a big fat bubble or the economy. I forget what he said during, a, I think it was a debate. Um, and if the Fed had raised interest rates, it all, even a little bit, it would all come crashing down, you know, implying that the Fed has been too easy on Obama and that he's asking them to do the same. I mean, it's, it's, it's hypocritical. Now, going back to the Trump tax cuts, I like tax cuts, whether it's for me or others. Um, it's a good thing, I think. The U.S. government should not be taking as much as they do from us, right? Uh, state governments, local governments. In fact, we saw this new you know, rain tax over in, in New Jersey. It, it's No, I'm not a fan of taxes at all. And yet, you got to understand that if you're going to cut taxes, you have to cut spending as well. And, and you know, I, I don't know, maybe there's some small spending cuts in certain areas, but as a whole, not enough to offset the Trump tax cuts. And the end result of that was higher deficits. And And the end result of that is going to be taxes. Now, maybe not in, in what we would consider taxes, right? People, did, uh, the government deducting it from your paycheck or whatever, but taxes in the form of inflation, the, the hidden tax, right? That's the end result. I mean, this, this, that, and the fact that, you know, rates will have to go higher because of a higher amount of debt added to the, you know, balance sheet of the U S government. Um, yields are going to have to go up because of more supply in the bond market. That That's, I mean, and so, uh, I like tax cuts, but but I got to criticize it because there wasn't spending cuts as well. And and it stimulates economic growth over the short term. Um, but but the whole idea of, of government taking in money and then spending it how they see fit, uh, which is oftentimes far less um, efficient than the free market, uh, well, that's kind of negated if you're not also cutting spending. They're still doing the spending, they're just paying for it with with debt, right? They're financing it with bonds, and and that's you know the end result of that is going to be, you know, more taxes through inflation and and, and higher rates and and overall you know a, a U.S. debt bubble popping sooner, and, and so I, I've said this for a long time, but this is just something to keep in mind that Trump tax cuts tax cuts great idea, but without spending cuts can be very dangerous and overall 
I'm not a fan of them. I'm not. So anyways, try not to get too political here. I'm just saying, um, erase, you know, your feelings about Donald Trump and remove him from the equation and replace it with Republican in office and never mind Obama, just replace it with Democrat in office. Okay. Not that I want to play identity politics or anything like that. I'm just saying if, if you remove your feelings about a certain person and just look at it, if you remove the party themselves and just say president A and president B, and this is what they're saying, right? Candidate A is saying, while he's running for office, the Fed has been too accommodative for current president. I wish they would raise rates or, or they shouldn't, you know, this, they, they've propped up this market, you know, implying that. And then once candidate A gets elected, says the Fed is being too tough on me. I wish they would be more accommodative. That's hypocritical. Never mind if we're talking about Trump, Obama, Bush, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever. Um, you're changing your viewpoint on things because any president knows, hopefully, that an accommodative Fed means easy economic growth for for some time. But you know, it's it's you know, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how this next uh, election and recession play out because there's a good chance they'd be coinciding with each other and. and um, well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that in the future. If we, uh, uh, let me know down below in the comment section, those of you that are still watching, listening, um, if we enter into a recession, a deep one, a pretty significant one prior to the votes being cast in the 2020 election, the stock market's probably going to be down, unemployment's rising, etc. How does that influence the election? Let me know down below in the comment section. As always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video listening to this podcast and God bless.